Rachel Needle from Talking With Tech. And I'm Chris Bouguet from Talking With Tech. We have a podcast dedicated to augmentative and alternative communication, all things related to helping kids with complex communication needs. If you have a passion for helping people with language disabilities, this is the show for you. Each episode features an interview or a roundtable discussion on a topic related to augmentative communication and helping people with language disabilities. And we're really passionate about giving practical strategies to clinicians working in the field who are working with children or adults, anything related to AAC. So you can look us up on iTunes or you can find us on Facebook. We've got a group over there or check out our website at bit.ly slash TWT podcast. Please join our community of professionals that are working to ensure that everyone can say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The views and opinions of the show do not constitute recommendations for therapy. Please, Please contact, contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or needs. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 124. We're proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. I'm Matt Hot, joined as always by his smiling face. It's Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Yeah, you're hiding your camera from us tonight, man. Am I? You oh, are. Yeah. Look at that. I'm there here. he is. And, <laughs> and everyone driving has no idea what we're talking about. The person who is always on camera, Michelle Wintering. Hello. How is uh, Kansas? Um, it is the sunflower state and sunflowers are blooming. We had a sunflower in the garden and then it got ripped out by a bird and then it never came back. That's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> episode number 124 on today's episode it's part two of the two-part uh interview series with the united states public health services uh the commissioned corps uh we've also are going to be talking about why we are doing pain scales incorrectly and uh one we should be using lee silverman but before all of that we want to hear from you make sure you head over to our website speechsciencepodcast.com you can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com uh hit us up on the social medias with the hashtag sspod and you can also give us a phone call or a text message 614-681-1799 I'll get it out of the way now. We do not have any SS Pod shoutouts or due processes. The SS Pod shoutout is your opportunity to let us know who is doing something awesome in the field, and we would love to recognize them here. The due process is your ability to complain, and uh, I will get into a complaint here in a little bit. But send us an SS Pod due process, and then we will debate it and figure out if you are in the right. Or if you are in the wrong. But let's start off like we always do. Catch up with our lovely co-hosts. 
And going by lightest shade of blue, Michelle, you win. What have you been doing this week? Is that blue? It looks blue. It's it's, it's like teal. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's more teal turquoise. But it's a shade we'll of it. blue. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Sounds good. On the it's color actually, wheel, it's in the blue corner. Hey, shout out to the organization Hope Speaks, who we had on hey. our show at ASHA, because it is my Hope Speaks shirt. Did they give you that for free? No, I bought it to support them, oh. Matt. Oh, okay. I was going to be like, you got swag by doing the interview? <laughs> um anyway they, no i bought it because i think their mission is great in uganda and training speech therapists so there you go awesome so what have you been up to this past week and yes wonderful shout out for hope speaks um hey you know anybody who has moved especially between states knows that you are getting out from under boxes for a while so huh. we are still unpacking we have huge stacks of boxes so now we need to get rid of those and then i think we will be doing much better but other than that we're good exploring the area getting to know um, the area around fort leavenworth which is where we are based now fort leavenworth kansas and um you know settling in now i know you guys just moved out there last week and a half ago two weeks ago about three weeks ago. Uh, are you are, are you guys into the job realm? I know your husband, is he back at work yet, or did they give him a little bit of time to kind of acclimate to the new area? Um, a little bit of time, and we also had to, um, like, a, I say quarantine, but it's more just uh, social distancing, like only going out for essential things for the first two weeks, anyone who oh. moves with the military right now. Uh, but that was okay because we've been unpacking and settling in so mandatory unpacking uh, time right thank you u.s right. army <laughs> but uh no my husband is actually going to be in a school for the next year uh, military army school uh training so it's um job hours but it's more academic based cool. than what yes yeah. I, I didn't know was. if he would be right back in or if they would have to mm -hmm. make him wait out so awesome yep so lots of studying Ugh, i'm sorry man that's all right Someone who is not studying, Michael McLeod. How is <laughs> definitely not been? studying? Uh, it's been good. I was always to... learning, Mike. Come you on, studying right, those always. bunkers and the uh, the the rough on the those golf courses out there in Philly. Yeah, trying to, trying to, still doing a, still not a lot of learning going on. It's a lot of playing. Put it that way. No, uh, no major improvements. Uh, so yeah, but uh, today I was able to go to uh, go home to Long Island to see for my nephew's birthday. That was really nice. My nephew's second birthday. Uh, and yeah, just kind of just prepping for the school year. There's one, all the public schools in my area will be closed, but I work at one private school that will be opening. Uh, so that's going to be very interesting. So uh, I'm prepping for that and the upcoming school year and uh, just like everyone else. Well, I guess we'll kind of see how it goes. That's pretty cool. I started back yeah. in my school district last week, uh, okay. tomorrow, which is the day or two before this thing drops. So I guess I'm talking about in the past, I'll be driving through a online or like a drive-through technology pickup where our school is giving every teacher a new Chromebook, an external monitor, uh, a wireless keyboard and mouse, web camera and document camera, along with power strip. So then that way, if we stay in person, we can just utilize those tools in in the classroom. But if we have to go to virtual, we are set and ready to go. 
So that is kind of cool, but I do have a rant that I need to say. And oh, the hot, the hot box. Hot, hot take. take. Hot yeah. take. Should I do the hot take now? Do yeah, it. bring it on. So I I, do to... I need to time you? Do you only get a minute? <laughs> no, it's it's just goofy. I had to renew my pupil activity permit here in Ohio, which is the one I use for coaching. Well, the Ohio Department of Education has changed their website since I last renewed it five years ago. And they changed the website again when I renewed it five years ago. So every five years, they keep changing the website. And this time, I had to register with the Ohio ID website, which then had to link me to the old website where all my stuff was. So I had to then not only create a new account, but then remember the previous accounts that I've ever created because the saved usernames and passwords were too old because I hadn't logged in in three years to update any of my licensure. It's funny you said that because when I had oh. to verify my Ohio licensure, they had just switched over to that new system. <laughs> Isn't that stupid? And it, it was a pain. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. it was a it's pain. It's so stupid. On you a know. positive, and I'm about to get a little adult humor here for a second. So are you guys ready? I'm ready. So <laughs> my wife kills me because she asked me to drive all the way out to Lancaster, Ohio, which is about two, two and a half hours from where we live. Uh, Michelle, it's about 30 minutes from Athens where we went mm -hmm, to school. I drove through it all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they have a, uh, a Rack's Roast Beef out there, and I really wanted a Rack's Roast Beef. So I drove through the Rack's Roast Beef, and I giggled like a little schoolgirl because they labeled their beef bacon cheddar on the menu. You have to order it as a large or medium BBC. And if you don't know what that means, uh, okay. Okay. go look that up on Urban Dictionary. But I giggled like or a little schoolgirl. <laughs> I, I giggled like a schoolgirl because I was like, can I get a BBC and some twisty fries? It took me a second. <laughs> it, took, it took me a second to think of that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It made wow. me laugh. It made me giggle. Literally, that's, it made me giggle. That's, that that's something for I'm SLPs thinking uncensored. British Broadcasting Corporation, you know. But yeah. Yes. I, thought you, I, I thought it was like bacon, egg, and cheese at first. I was no. like, okay. Bacon, egg, and cheese. Uh, I had my racks, and that was the first time I've had racks in over 10 years. So I was excited. <laughs> yes, I drove two and a half hours to get something out of Lancaster and a roast beef sandwich. All right. And okay. then today, complained about Ohio. You know, Department if you were telling me that it was for your wife... I would have been like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm our kidding. little baby speech science is due here in the scheduled eviction date is the 16th of September. So about two that and a half weeks. That is so soon. Nice. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a little girl. I'm excited. That is I'll have awesome. three kids in my house and I will maybe never do another podcast again because I'll just be crying, rocking in the corner. And Mike and I will be like, what's the phone number again? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 614 <laughs> maybe? I don't know. Yours Hashtag SSPod. <laughs> we can't do this without Matt. Matt's got all the passwords saved. That's that's called that's job true. security. If that's this was a job, job that made security. us any money at all. Yep. Uh, oh, I do have a Discord shout out this week, though. Yeah, let's see it. Our friends in Australia... Her name is Minty. I don't know what her na real name is, but on the Discord, Minty. She is talking about, uh, we've been talking about uh, mask usage in that part of Australia. Mm. And she says, the states of New South Wales and Victoria are wearing masks, but the rest of them are happily mask free. 
Oh, is that based on numbers? I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. That's Not great. Bad. Uh, but yeah, so you said lucky here in the ACT and ACT stood for the Australian Capital Territory. They've been COVID free and back to normal since May, since May. I don't know what that's like. Do you guys know what being back to normal since May is like? No, I don't know what normal is. <laughs> there's no, there's no normal anymore. They're opening up movie theaters. Are you guys going to go to any movie theaters this weekend? Nope. No, 15 cents. You can get coat. I mean, go see a movie. You can get. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a terrible uh, idea. Matt, what about your um, pass for the so many movies a month? So I was talking to my wife and my son about that this weekend. And I think I'm going to because it was $20 a person. I think I'm kind of done for a while going to the movie theaters just because it's too dangerous. And I'm not sure I would uh -huh. get the different ex like experience. Mm -hmm. That I think I'm just going to flip that forty dollars and rent two or three movies each week, or like total, like once every week, and use the other twenty bucks to buy a movie. All right, you do that. Yeah, I mean, and then I get to see it from my house. Unlimited popcorn, unlimited bathroom breaks. So, did you see the Batman trailer? I did. I saw all of the DC fandom, and I'm super pumped by all of it. Even the Snyder cut on HBO Max. Michelle, do you have any idea what we're talking about? No. The DC fandom <laughs> was like the global co comic con for the DC comics. And they have a new Batman movie coming out. Michelle, did you enjoy the Twilight movies? Do you know when I had to watch those? No. Um, I I read the books, but I like to read like book series. Um, had never seen the movies. And my grad school roommates, who Matt knows, um insisted that we go to see the last one and made me watch the first two before i could go see the last one with them because i wasn't a huge twilight fan okay well do you know who robert patterson is <laughs> yes i also know harry potter so. okay okay well did you ever wonder what would happen if cedric diggory's parents were murdered in front of him and then he grew up to enjoy bats and then fight live a life of fighting crime because he sure. grew up to enjoy grew up to enjoy bats <laughs> he's the new batman robert pattinson he doesn't that's enjoy an interesting bats. cast yeah he looks good in the mask man he does he does so and so do does to... uh so does the riddler whoever that guy oh, yeah. is yeah yeah whoever that guy is and and my wife just told me that she learned um just asking her <laughs> i have to ask my wife who's the penguin and then she just found out colin farrell is uh the penguin in this movie as she described oh. him, the really good-looking guy is now in a lot of makeup. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I don't know. I don't know how true that is, but that's what she says. But you know what? When I was a kid, we had George Clooney and Val Kilmer, and now the kids get Robert Pattinson and Ben Affleck. Oh, the Batman. <laughs> that was Colin Farrell on that trailer? Was it? Yeah, I guess. It looks nothing like him. None of them do. So, if That's you tuned crazy. in for the Batman podcast, that'll come up right after this one. But this is Speech Science, so let's jump right on in, and we want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, speechsciencepodcast.gmail.com, 614-681-1798, or hashtag it up, SSPod, or the discord.speechsciencepodcast.com. Our first article, it is coming out of Parkinson's Parkinson's News Today 
Uh, and they say the Lee Silverman voice treatment improves communication and Parkinson's uh, studies show. I'm not overly trained, like directly trained in the Lee Silverman. This is something I've always wanted to take trainings for. Uh, you may have seen him on reports, the LSVT. Uh, are either one of you trained in Lee Silverman or have worked with the Lee Silverman voice training program? I have done some work with it. I worked mm -hmm. at a clinic where people were trained in it uh, and they taught me some of the techniques, like some of the sustained phonation techniques and different things like that. And it was actually kind of cool. And uh, a lot of the patients really enjoyed it. It was super easy to use in therapy. Uh, and the patients really seemed to like really enjoy it. They thought it was really uh, helpful and they could kind of sense and, and feel themselves getting stronger. So that was nice. I'm in the same boat as Mike that I've worked with people in clinics with people who therapists who are trained in that. And that's kind of their niche area. And they get referred referrals from voice patients who will benefit from that. But um, other than learning this, some of the techniques, I've never been trained in it, but I think it would be great to be. The article is the journal of communication, or I'm sorry, the journal is the journal of communication disorders. Uh, it was published back on the 18th of August, 2020. Um, but the conclusion they come up with, they say the, the findings suggested that LSVT loud, uh, I believe that's a different version of the program, uh, promotes an increased sense of personal control over the communication difficulties resulting from uh, Parkinson's disease by decreasing voice handicap and improving communication effectiveness and communicative participation. For, par uh, for individuals with Parkinson's, LSVT loud may reduce the risk of social isolation by improving communication and facilitating social uh, participation. So pretty cool. I do know that when I work with Parkinson's patients, I mean, I'm not using any LSVT and I probably should go get trained with that, but there is a lot of talk about how my patients feel that they cannot actively engage in conversation because they feel that their voice is nowhere near where it used to be. And they just don't want that embarrassment or they don't want to have to, uh, have everyone stop talking so that they can talk. So if you go to lsvtglobal.com, I'm trying to mm -hmm. see exactly, they offer online training now, which is good, of course. Ooh. I'm trying to see exactly how much it is to get certified in this. Uh, like, I remember LSVT being like the one thing you learn in grad school that's like super evidence-based. You guys get the same thing on that? Yes, that was one of the things that we got. I, yes. Were you in that class, Michelle? Voice, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, like that was one of the one things that a lot of the professors really drove home is like, okay, here's a here's a technique that has a ton of research. You know, some things have, you know, uh, differentiating research. Some things show positive, some things, some, some things show negative. But LSVT is one of those few things that really has a lot of, a lot of positivity behind it. Okay, so there's two trainings. There's LSVT Big, which trains people with Parkinson's to use their body more normally. And LSVT Loud, which is speech treatment for people with Parkinson's and other neurological conditions. Mm -hmm. Loud is what the therapist I worked with used with patients for voice. Mm -hmm. I believe mine as well. The sustained phonations are good. You know, I've, I've used those with you know, kids as well that have, you know, uh, volume issues or, you know, just, just breathing overall with speech. And, uh, it's, it's really helpful and it's, and it's, uh, it's really good at, at keeping data. 
because uh, you can, can have you like describe a, describe that for just for some of our listeners because I'm sure there's people who don't know what that entails. So the sustained phonation tasks are basically just uh, doing the open vowel ah, and basically um, what I always do is I have like a decibel meter on my phone, and I also use like a stopwatch. So you want to see how long they can hold the ah and what the average decibel is for how they do it. Uh, so some of them are working on volume, some of them are working on length, lung capacity, those sorts of things. And I could be saying this all wrong, so please provide me all the feedback you can. <laughs> but uh, but it's in terms of tracking data and tracking progress, you know, I can't think of one student I've worked with that eventually is able to increase their time or increase their volume. It, it, it's certainly a, a, a quite a helpful exercise. Well, and what with what you said, Mike, like as we get more into this PDPM or PGSM or whatever acronym they choose to use in the next 10 years <laughs> or whatever, uh, the point is, is we need more data to drive funding. And, you know, when you can say that mm -hmm. you sustained a vow for four seconds three weeks ago and now you're at 24 seconds, that's hard proof that therapy should continue. Uh, so did you guys know that Lee Silverman was not the person who created it? Really? She is the person who they used the treatment on, I guess. Interesting. Did not Says, know that. Research began in, this is from their website, 1987, when Dr. Lorraine Ramig met Mrs. Lee Silverman and her family. If only we could hear her and understand her was the express wish of Mrs. Silverman's husband and her adult children. Wow. That's pretty cool. I never mm. knew that until 10 seconds ago. Are there any other therapies in our field that are named after the patient besides that one? I don't know. There's got to be one. That's so interesting. I'm looking at their course agenda for their online. And by the way, if there's anything that good comes out of COVID, it's the fact that we can do online courses for training. Yes. I yes. Agreed. I like going to Columbus and seeing everybody. I loved going to Orlando and hanging out with you, Michelle. But if you mean, if that means I can do all the courses from my house. Mm -hmm. I think options are good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, I hope down the road we can have the option of in-person and the option of the continued use of distance. Yeah. Great. It says uh, the course only is $580. The course plus LSVT companion, which I have no idea what that is. Oh, it's a uh, sound pressure level duration and frequency data with one click. Oh, that's a program. Uh, that is $959. But the online version, it's a two-day virtual live seminar uh, with a pre and post requisites and a third virtual day for Zoom's Q&A, uh, 17 different modules. So that's pretty cool. Bad. So I don't know. We'll have a link to that. But if you use LSVT loud or LSVT big, or do you work in a therapy area where both are used together? I had a Parkinson's patient. Oh, about six months ago. And now this all makes sense where they said that the therapy was targeting writing large letters and doing big motions. Cause they told him that Parkinson's makes him do small motions. I so bet that's part they of were using loud. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Say that again. I think Isn't that's that big. part of loud or the, that's, the, that's big. That's okay. big. Yeah. yeah the mm -hmm. movement, Sorry. the big movements. But now it's yep. like, oh, now that all makes sense. That's really uh, cool. 
If you're using LSVT Big or LSVT Loud, let us know. SpeechSciencePodcast.com, SpeechSciencePodcast at gmail.com, 614-681-1798, or the hashtags SSPod. Our second article, or of course, you could always Discord at uh, Discord.SpeechSciencePodcast.com. I almost forgot our website. Second article, it talks about how we are doing the pain scale all wrong. Michelle, on a scale of zero means you're fine. Ten, I need to call the ambulance. How much pain are you in right now? I, I've always hated the scale, Matt. I think you remember me in grad school talking about the pain uh-huh, scale. I do. Mike, zero to ten. <laughs> zero being, oh, I kind of scraped my knuckle. Ten being, I have an open head wound. Oh, you how, gave how him much is your pain? descriptors. Uh, I changed it up a little bit. I would bit. say currently a zero. Yeah, so uh, evidently... Yeah. Both ways I gave you, this is according to a study uh, out of the AGMC, which stands for, I have no idea what that is, but they're saying that they did a study uh, with patients with a migraine, migraine, and guess what? Not a good scale to use. Not a good scale to use at all, and they believe it may carry over to all people with pain, And Mike, this is right up your alley. They used 150 participants and they found that when you're in pain, you may not understand numbers and the uh, correspondence, the spatial awareness between the numbers as well as you do when you are not in pain. Interesting. That is interesting. And also because it depends. I've seen people give it different ways. People will say based on what you've experienced for pain. So it depends on what that reference is for that person, right? And then there's, um, oh, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but an SLP mentor of mine during an externship because we were in an acute care hospital and it came back in because, you know, you'd have the person chewing on ice chips and tell you that they have a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. pain and they're just sitting there having a normal conversation with you and and then the person who's clearly in more pain who's like seven right right and um and so i think it's very if you don't give some kind of rating or kind of know that patient it's really hard to to make it as objective as we want it to be and because people will always add just like people say 110 percent all the time people will be like 11 12 off the scale and so this slp he would say um sometimes to patients depending on the patient if if i could light you on fire and you would not be in more pain that is a 10 out of 10 (laughs) like there is and i was like it's extreme i know it's extreme but i also just sent you guys because um when i went to physical therapy no um, uh when i was in physical therapy this was taped to the side of I love this scale. The desk. And so I, I, I don't know if you can see the image, but it says the improved pain scale. And number one, it says it might be an itch. And it goes all the way up to number five is like question mark bees to number seven. I can't stop crying to nine. I was mauled by a bear or ninjas and 10 is unconscious. I like number eight. Uh, oh. I like number eight. I can't move. It hurts so bad. Yeah. And that's, but that's a solid description. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen, I, I feel like being pregnant and um, going to doctor's offices a lot (laughs) that uh, I've seen more and more, even if they have the numbers listed up there, they have the faces to go with it now. I've seen that at children's hospital. Um, I think these are all adults. These are not pediatric care. My doctor, I still think says, are you in any pain? And I think I like 
goofed up something on my knee and I was like, yeah, they're like scale. And I'm like one, like, so yeah, I think my doctor still uses one to 10, mm-hmm. but it is the easiest one. Cause you don't need mm-hmm. a visual. You well, just so here's say. why they say it shouldn't be done though. They say pain okay. intensity is typically measured through verbal ratings, numerical ratings and visual analog scales. They all require spatial cognition. Prior work has shown that Hmm. chronic pain may lead to a deficit in memory and attention. Makes sense. These skills are needed for number sense. They noted calling it a cognitive ability essential for spatial numerical processing, such as the assessment of numerical values and measurement of scale sizes. Hmm. Makes sense. I tell my patients all the time that if your brain is not fed, watered, pain-free, stress-free, anxiety-free, and not tired, your memory is going to go downhill. And then if we add in any deficit or damage caused by stroke, diabetes, alcohol, concussion, things are mm-hmm. going to get a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of makes sense where maybe I need to redo it. I do home health care. I'll walk in and be like, hey, are we in any pain today? And my patient doesn't know what day it is. They might not be able to identify what they're in pain for. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And I think for any of us working in medical settings where you're asking, you know, one of your check-ins with that patient straight away is pain. So what are we what are we doing to actually and also I think there's there's that clinical observation piece of if someone is telling you that they are in a lot of pain and they're not uh, but you're not seeing it, okay, why? Right? Like what's causing the pain that's not causing a physical response. Um mm-hmm. And then if they're saying that they're not in pain, oh, it's a two, but their face is saying it's an eight, then, you know, why? What do we need to do? Couldn't have said it better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Very well said, yeah. Now, in the private practice world, Mike, do you guys do a whole lot of the pain and vitals or no? Not at all, no. Not Not with my population, at least. That's interesting. No. I've never done any anything regarding pain. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I find it like we were just having a training the other day about like what we're allowed and what we're not allowed to do with home health care. And I find my scope of practice is always in question because it's like I I don't do wound care, but I have to know how to identify a wound and like what stage a wound is in. And then like yeah. talk to somebody about pain management and all that kind of stuff. And you need to be able to contact the right people, you know, the wound care nurse to come in with home health or exactly make that referral. No, I, yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. So, but I think that that comes with different settings that you're in, just like when you, you know, our sister fields in a lot of ways with, um, which might, depending on the setting you're in is OT, you know, PT might be a dietitian, might be teachers, might be, um, nurses, wound mm-hmm, care, and mm-hmm. uh, we have to be able to know just surface level of what they do so that we know when to call them in. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> it's hard. Well, I don't know. Yeah. At least communicating the level of pain, the location of yeah. pain. You know, that's really, you know, I think that's right up our alley, especially if you have an AAC user who's trying to express pain. How are you going to, how are you going to get that from them or a nonverbal person who can't use AAC? 
I, How are we going to learn pain from them? I stole, borrowed from my externship 10 years ago, a wonderful packet of like AAC boards. And then ever since then, I've been making copies of them. They're two-sided and they have the pain scale on the front. But it's nice. like a red face to a yellow face to a green face. Do you know where they're from so you can get yourself more? No. <laughs> but I will look next time I see them. They're in my trunk. I only get them out when I have a patient that's nonverbal. Okay. Not bad. Well, how are you using the pain scale? Let us know. Go ahead over our website, speechsciencepodcast.com or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on the discords or Twitters or phone call 614-681-1798. Michelle, after the break, it's part two, right? Yes, of the interview with the um, SLPs from the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. So you get to hear from the clinical positions this time. So those SLPs who are actually practicing and um, treating speech language therapy right now. Wonderful. You're listening to Speech Science. Hi, I'm Mayling Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Speech Science Podcast. I'm Michelle Wintering, and you are about to hear a part two of our panel interviews with speech-language pathologists serving and working in uniform for the United States Public Health Service. Part two, I am speaking with two SLPs who are providing direct treatment services, so serving in a more traditional speech-language pathologist role within the uh, uniformed service. So um, here with me today, if you can introduce yourselves, Commander Joanne Fentz. Hi, I'm Joanne, um, speech English pathologist. I work with the Department of Defense. Um, I'm at uh, Naval Medical Center Portsmouth in Virginia. I've been um, an SLP for about 15 years, um, 11 um, with the um, Public Health Service. Thank you. And then also we have Lieutenant Courtney Wood. Hi there, uh, my name's Courtney and I've been a speech language pathologist for 18 years and currently I am at the Fort Carson Army Post and I work at the Warrior Recovery Center at Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And uh, Lieutenant Courtney Wood and I had that connection as well. I used to live in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. um, and then I had a chance to meet her at the ASHA conference. So if anyone attended ASHA and saw some folks walking around in what looks like a uniform, kind of a military uniform, um, that, Courtney was one of those people. <laughs> um, all right. So what I would love to touch on next is um, how do you describe 
what you do when someone asks. I know a speech language pathologist and the majority of our listeners are speech language pathologists, but um, how do you describe what you do as a speech language pathologist within the United States Public Health Service? I'll defer to Commander Sense first. Okay. Um, so within the Public Health Service or within uh, my role at um, Naval Medical Center Fort Smith? Uh, let's start broad. So just within the Public Health Service and then, um, and then you specifically. Okay. Okay. So um, within Public Health, I just feel like with our um, position, uh, you know, we can really touch upon great many different spheres um, of influence uh, when it comes to um, communication and, and just really educating people about what we do as speech language pathologists. Um, you know, obviously the broad um, uh, context of advancing the um, public health um, mission and all of that, um, but more specifically with what I do at Portsmouth um, within the Warrior Concussion Clinic, um, I'm mainly the uh, cognitive communication re uh, rehabilitation um, specialist. Um, so helping service members with problems with, you know, memory, attention, word finding, uh, and that nature. So um, I hope that makes sense. Yes, so, yeah, definitely. Okay. And uh, Lieutenant Wood, go ahead. Um, so in, in public health, I have found that there is a, as you saw with the part one, there's a wide variety of non-clinical billets, but also in clinical billets, you have a, a great opportunity to serve in a variety of different settings and serving a variety of different populations. Though I've only been in public health service for two years, uh, or yes, two years, um, I have had a wide spectrum of experience already. I initially started with Indian Health Services and I was the speech language pathologist responsible to be of service for 80,000 members of the Navajo tribe. And also in that kind of responsibility, doing a lot of community outreach, early intervention, and getting people to connect not only with communication and speech language skills, but also swallowing and uh, doing uh, revamping the whole video fluoroscopy program, getting people in touch with literacy programs. So I had all that experience. And now over at uh, Fort Carson in Colorado Springs, um, I do something similar as Commander Sense where I too am a cognitive communication expert. We are a um, concussion clinic. We're called the Warrior Recovery Center. And so we are also sponsored, I believe, um, we have a relationship with uh, DIVVIC, which is the Defense Veteran Brain Injury uh, Centers. And so I, too, like Commander Sense, work a lot with um, post-concussive treatment and rehabilitation, oh. a lot of attention, word finding, language, memory. And then we also do um, something else called dual tasking a lot. So we'll make the service members perform an exercise and do their cognitive work at the same time, just to kind of give them that little extra um, challenge. I'm, I told the part one interviewees this as well, that I think I could have every one of you on for an episode <laughs> of our podcast to, to learn more about what you do, because, mm -hmm. because it is so broad, but also so unique in the speech pathology world. Yes. And um, so on that note, mm -hmm. I would love to hear, we can start with Commander Sense, um, what you said you previously worked outside of the Uniform Public Health Service, but um, 
what what brought you to the United States Public Health Service? Um, so previously, before I joined, um, I was working with children with autism um, in a small little physical therapy practice in Fullerton, California, um, mainly working with the early intervention population and later moving into the private practice and um, treating older children with autism. And then, um, so I did five years of that. Um, a friend of mine actually came out from the East Coast um, and visited me. She's an occupational therapist with the public health service at the time. And she you know, informed me about PHS and she said, you know, you should look into this. It's a great opportunity. Um, and at the time she was um, an officer for probably five or six years, but she had never been in a clinical billet. And uh, it just sounded fascinating to me. She said, go ahead and just, you know, research it. Um, you know, I think you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Um, and at that time, I was really kind of looking to work with adults, too. So when she mentioned, you know, there were some traumatic brain injury um, billets that were available through public health service. Um, you know, I, I researched, I called the recruiter, and they gave me a list of, um, you know, different location, locations throughout the country. Um, and I happened to um, be able to station at my first duty station was in Hawaii, Honolulu. So really can't complain, you know, for my first duty station over there. It's a good yeah. first spot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Lieutenant Wood, if you can share yeah. about your experience. So what led me to join public health service was actually um, a little bit of my own tenacity. I had been a teacher and a speech language pathologist. Um, with the public schools for many years and then also moonlighted in a variety of different after school settings from like SNFs and ALFs and acute, um, acute rehab as well. But at the time, um, my husband is a retired Navy reservist and when we were dating, he was active duty and I just enjoyed the military life and the organization and started to think about how I could be of service to my country too. So I'm a little bit of a late bloomer. I kind of came into it a little late in my career. And uh, so as a reservist, I noticed he would get a monthly publication called the TNR, which is the Navy reservist in one month. Um, the magazine had a physical a Navy physical therapist on the cover and I thought, well, if a physical therapist can be active duty or a reservist, if you will, then then clearly a speech language pathologist ought to be able to be active duty too. And, um, and well, that, that's a true statement with the United States Public Health Service. And currently the, the United States Public Health Service is the only uniform branch of service with speech language pathology as a billet for practitioners to serve. And that's how I was able to find a way to use my skill set to help promote better health for the nation. Thank so really you. It really was a magazine. <laughs> uh, you find your way in different ways, right? Right. <laughs> um, and you both touched on that familiarity with the, the military. Is someone in the United States Public Health Service a uniformed service, but are you considered members of the military? Commander Sense? Um, so I think we're considered like a non-military uniform service, is my understanding of it. So we're not um, trained in arms. Um, we do, you know, work alongside, of course, our um, brothers and sisters in, this, in our um, other branches of uniform services, but um, I don't think we're considered to be in the, um, in the military. So, and specifically, like, um, just to kind of elaborate with what Commander Sense is saying, we're not considered the armed forces. We right. are considered active duty. We are considered commissioned officers. Mm -hmm. In fact, I looked up, even those who graduate from the Merchant Marine Academy, 
can complete their service obligation by commissioning as a United States Public Health Officer. So those mm -hmm. who want to go to academies, if you go to the Merchant Marine Academy, you can be you can commission or ask the commission to be a USPHS officer. But we are humanitarian, so we are one of the two sister services of the seven total uniform services that are not armed. So us and the National Oceanographic Aerospace Atmospheric Association, I don't know if I get NOAA correct, and I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but they are the other one that is also uniformed, commissioned officers, but they too are not armed. And each of you said you learned into your speech pathology career already. And part one, it sounded like many of the people I interviewed agreed with that as well. But there's many people who joined the United States Public Health Service as SLPs who had no idea that this sort of position existed until well into their SLP careers. Um, mm -hmm. So we we have a an audience. I don't know how broad it is, but we have an audience of a lot of speech pathology listeners. Uh, what do you want them to know? What What do you want them to know about the United States Public Health Service? And, um, you know, maybe someone listening could be the next commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service as an SLP. So <laughs> let us know. So in regards to, to being a speech language pathologist with public health service, like the journey to it or? Uh, what's, the, what's the biggest thing you want them to know about? Yeah, okay. about be, about that kind of specific role as an SLP. I hate to sound, you know, very simple, but it, it's awesome. It's amazing. I I feel like it has completely broadened my horizons, and I felt pretty practiced as a speech language pathologist coming in, and I thought I knew everything because I had kind of dipped my toe in every what I thought was pretty much every single aspect you could as a speech language pathologist. Um, not to um, age myself, but I had practiced for about 16 years prior to coming into uniform. And so I've had a little bit of everything. And so coming into uniform, I thought, well, I have a whole skill set and I'll just apply that same skill set. And sometimes I, that's yes, but a lot of times it's not in, in that like I have to recruit more of independent thinking and taking a leadership role and trying to execute things instead of just following what I'm told, which I, which I do too, but like you, you have more leadership opportunities. Mm -hmm. no. And uh, Commander Sense, what would you like to add? Um, so I definitely second that. It's, you know, been an incredible journey being um, in the United States Public Health Service and just the different um, aspects, I would say, um, that there's just so much diversity, um, just, so, just so many different opportunities to serve, um, not just as a clinician, but an administrator, a researcher, you know, um, your education, treatment, all of that. I think it's just um, a wonderful opportunity if anybody wants to pursue it and look into it. And, you know, you're not limited to just one setting. It's so neat that you could, you know, travel, um, you know, within two to three years, you know, to a different duty station or remain in the same duty station for, you know, as many years as you want. Um, and, uh, you know, just having that flexibility, I think. So, if, you know, you have a young family um, and you want to travel and you don't want to pull your kids out of school or, you know, I think it just, you have a lot of um, opportunity to do different things. So you, you touched on assignments, length of assignments, and mm -hmm. I'm curious about that. Is 
does it vary widely in the U.S. Public Health Service? Or um, as you said, can you stay in one location long term? Yeah, so um, when I was at uh, my first duty station, I was there for uh, almost three years, um, and I could have stayed on longer if I wanted to, um, I, but I was looking for something different at the time, and then I transferred to Camp Lejeune, still within DOD, Department of Defense, but um, I was working with the Marines um, there at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and there I stayed for six years, um, and at that point, I decided, you know what, maybe I'm tired of being a clinician, and I want to you know, perhaps do some um, policy making or, you know, do more administrative work. I could have looked into a position in DC, um, you know, so there's so many um, just opportunities to just jump around, you know, and um, diversify your career if you wanted to. You, you kind of agree to be of service. So you're under a contract, if you will, for a certain amount of time. But um, what you do have is at the end of that contract is you can choose to just extend and it's, um, it, it has no deadline, if you will. It, it ends when you decide that you don't want to be there anymore. Interesting. Okay, and and I, and I asked this too, being my my husband is active duty military mm -hmm. myself, so it, we we jump around a lot. Um, so mm -hmm. complete curiosity. Um, how does your licensure work? Is are you licensed per the state you're live you're living in, or do you maintain one if you're with Department of Defense? Commander Sense. Um, so for us, you know, when we move, we, um, the state license change depending on which state you're, um, you're in and you're practicing in, but, you know, we still um, maintain our ASHA uh, license, um, mm -hmm. you know, yearly. We maintain that yearly um, um, annual, you know, uh, state board, but, um, you know, as you move, um, I mean, I think you can still maintain, you know, yeah. your previous state's um, mm -hmm. licenses, but since you're not currently practicing there, it doesn't really make sense to maintain those. Um, yeah. So currently I have a Virginia license, but my North Carolina license has expired and I have, I've decided not to renew that. Okay, mm -hmm. okay so it works similar and, to right. anyone moving state to state. Correct. Well, I will, I will say this is another option is, is the option I've done, which is I've just maintained my Florida license because you're in a federal position, you only need one state license and you can practice anywhere in the United States. So I've just maintained my Florida license, even though I'm in Colorado, um, because it's a federal job, it, that is okay. But if I wanted to um, fill out some paperwork and moonlight at a Colorado facility, I would have to have a Colorado license. Ah, uh, gotcha. So that is the, uh, that, that's the distinction to make there. Yes. <laughs> Um, so having interviewed the last group who were all in non-clinical positions, and then you, Commander Sense, just mentioned that um, there are opportunities to look between clinical and, and non-clinical. Uh, would you say of the speech-language pathologists, and I think they mentioned about six, how many, how many speech-language pathologists there are in the United States Public Health Service? Um, I believe it was mentioned in the first part. I can't remember the number, but um, are there more in direct clinical roles or more in non-clinical roles? Um, this, I think there's 11, almost, a, I think there's 11 or 12 of us. Mm -hmm. Commander Sense, is, right. that, is that right? Yeah, and, I think just over 10 a little bit, yeah. And it's almost, I think, Let's see, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to count up, like, I'm in a clinical billet, you are. Mm -hmm. I know Commander Kala's in a clinical billet. Molly? Molly, uh, Commander Rutledge is in a clinical billet. So, six, four are clinical, 
seven or not. Is that right? Yeah, I think there's more non-clinical. There's more non-clinical at this time. Okay, but it can vary. That's right. <laughs> uh, and you, uh, Lieutenant Wood, are currently mm -hmm. partnered, you're aligned with, I'm not sure how you say that, um, with the United States Army at this time? Yeah, so we are detailed. So Commander Sense and I, we are detailed to different branches. There is a memorandum of agreement with the Department of Defense and the United States Public Health Service to serve um, TBI populations. So there's a little agreement and the memorandum of understanding allows us to be detailed to different armed forces branches. So um, Commander Sense is at a Naval Hospital. Um, I'm currently at an Army facility. Um, we could next say, uh, say we want to have a different clinical role and I might end up at an Air Force base. So we can jump around the different armed forces because we are all the armed forces are in need of addressing that um, the TBI community and really serving all service members of all branches. Wonderful. Um, well, I'm I'm getting close to the end here, but I would love to hear um, if you have any of your favorite stories, obviously taking into account HIPAA, but anything that you would love to share that's unique, a story that's unique about being an SLP in the United States Public Health Service? Um, sure, yeah, I think one of my favorite um, success stories while working um, at the Intrepid Spirit Center, uh, Concussion Recovery Center at Camp Lejeune, uh, was seeing just a very persistent Marine who didn't give up on himself. You know, he was a staff sergeant at the time. Um, he was hurting on many levels when I first met him. Uh, his concussion history was just similar to so many others that I've seen, you know, over my 11 years in the field of TBI and uh, multiple combat deployments, Iraq, Afghanistan, exposed to numerous IED blasts, you know, uh, resulting in just uh, loss of consciousness for unknown durations, things like that. You know, symptoms following those events, right, would include, you know, ringing in the ears, photophobia, uh, headaches, insomnia, finger irritability, so on and so forth, PTSD. But on top of all his medical appointments, he was, you know, also going to marriage counseling, trying to improve all his relationships at home with his young children. He was taking like over 10 different types of medication at the time. And he just saw very little progress, you know, and just like so many other Marines and service members, they just minimized their concerns, you know, and even though they were just routinely exposed to so many different hazards that uh, resulted in TBI. Um, and just due to their high operational tempo, many of them didn't, didn't see care, you know, or they dropped out of care. And um, on top of that, he was also feeling pretty betrayed by his command um, when he thought that they had turned their back on him. He was taking off full duty, placing the warriors, uh, which is like a transitional unit, so that he could focus on his medical appointments. Um, and, you know, all he wanted to do was continue to deploy and fight alongside his brothers in arms. Um, he felt that if he, you know, stopped getting care, stopped getting um, help, that he was letting um, he was letting people down, and he didn't want to lose his identity as a Marine. Um, and I remember, um, you know, after getting his buy-in treatment, because not everybody, they're not on board right away, you know, and so a lot of it is this, um, this trust building in the therapeutic relationship. And, um, you know, after... A couple of months, I would say within three to four months, you know, his, his persistence definitely paid off. And you can see that 
Um, he was coming to, you know, his appointments, attending regularly. He was seeking um, spiritual healing in conjunction with all his medical appointments. And, you know, one day he just told me that he had returned back to his faith. Um, and we eventually discharged him after the 16 weeks. Um, our program was a 16-week program at the Intrepid Spirit there. And one day he came back to see me and, you know, he, he saw me walking with another patient, but he just came and he, he pretty much jumped in front of me, gave me this big hug and said, thank you for encouraging, you know, him for um, the time that he, he needed someone there to listen and that I didn't, I didn't walk away, you know, and I was, um, I was there to just kind of help him process things. And he said he was going back to school um, and, and returning to school, going back for a master's degree in counseling and that. Um, he felt that God had completely healed him from his PTSD. So I just, I just teared up, you know, such an amazing oh. testimony of this young Marine who turned his pain into his purpose. So. That's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And how about you, Lieutenant Wood, any stories you would like to share? Well, mine isn't exactly with a specific patient, but in the small amount of time that I've been in uniform, one of my my most passionate projects I've started was called the Ex Libris Project. And in this project, it was where I um, in working with um, in the in the Navajo area Four corners area. So that's like the Utah, New Mexico, Arizona and Colorado area. It's it's like a hundred miles away from the nearest interstate. And so one of the first things I was able to identify because I had the liberty to be able to, they said, you know, you're the speech therapist, take over this department and make it, make it happen. And um, so after a little bit of observation, like some of the things you would take for granted, such as like, um, you know, do you, are you able to read to your children? And it's not that they are not, you know, these parents are not able to read. That's not the problem. It's just they don't have access to the materials because it's hard to get transportation and it's hard mm -hmm. to like just the act of getting a library book. It's like an hour into town and then they have to pay a fee to get a library card. And then it's an hour to go back home and then they have to come back like two weeks and like it's just hard to get around. And um so I kind of made this initiative happen and I called around all the public libraries because a friend of mine is a, is a librarian and I happened to have like the insider know that libraries often weed out their books and they'll pack them up and ship them off to like places of need. And I just started into kind of putting myself in the middle of it saying, hey, before you ship off those books, I'll take them and I'll just take them to my clinic. And every time I have a little guy coming in, I'll just tell the parents, take as many books as you want. And, um, so, and so Ex Libre stands for like out of the library, basically. And so <laughs> I'd go around to like different, about five or six different libraries that were in the community. And I'd stack up my little RAV4 with as much books as I could. And in about 18 months, we were able to distribute uh, over 10,000 books. That's incredible. And so like just I would go out to all these different clinics and every time I had a meeting somewhere I would pack up my car with books and I would give it to the other speech therapists like down in other areas of the Four Corners area and say okay here's some more books for you guys because if it's hard for our families and even myself to get these books I know it must be hard for you too so take them. And I even had some people in the um, 
Denver area, I had a friend of mine in Denver actually drive all the way out to the Four Corners area and she had packed her car because she was a teacher and she had a book drive and she had all these families bringing books and then she packed her car, drove over, visited me, dropped off the books and then I took the books and started distributing them to families. And, and I loved the idea. I loved how it brightened their faces. Just the fact that I was like, here, just take as no limit with how many books you want. And then don't worry about bringing them back. Just share them with your, with your cousins, with your friends. When you're done with these, just make sure you just keep sharing them. Mm, just pass it, it along yeah. <laughs> just pass it along it, it costs yeah it costs nothing other than you know my gas but I like to drive and travel and go see things anyway so it was a little bit of a selfish endeavor because then I'd be like oh I'm going to stop and hike on this trail while I go get books or you know I'm going to go to Telluride this weekend so I'm going to go get more books and then I'm also going to enjoy Telluride but so um so there's a little bit of a selfish element in there but at the same time I felt like it really helped connect the community, which was what I wanted to do in uniform and like see, see a deficit and address it. And I, I like that it was other than my gas, no cost, like the co books cost nothing. The boxes cost nothing. It, it costs nothing. <laughs> Thank you for that. Lieutenant Wood. And for anyone interested in finding out more, it is the website usphs.gov. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Wonderful. And um, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a joy to talk to you all and to those in the part one of the interview. Um, and I will be in touch probably via email, but I uh, appreciate your time. And I, um, who knows, like I said on the, the last part, maybe someone listening uh, might be the next commission officer as a speech language pathologist. We hope we'd love to have them. <laughs> and uh, thank you. So thank you, Commander Sense, and thank you, Lieutenant Wood. Thank you, Michelle. Michelle. We have an add-on for you. Um, Eric Kala is another speech-language pathologist, so I will throw it to him to introduce himself. Go ahead. Hello, yes. Uh, my name is uh, Commander Eric Kala. Oh, I said it wrong. I'm Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. And I'm stationed in, in Chinle, Arizona, on the Navajo Reservation. And I work for Indian Health Service as a speech-language pathologist. I've, um, in terms of, of being an SLP, I've been an SLP officially for um, 22 years. And, and in the Commission Corps, I've been a member of it since uh, 2007. So it's been 12 years, 13 years now. Well, thank you, Commander Kala, and um, we do still have Lieutenant Wood on with us, correct? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, um, Commander Kala, Kala joined at the very end of my call and interview with uh, Lieutenant Wood and um, Commander Sense, so we wanted to have an opportunity to just hear from him a little bit uh, to give you some info. I know you heard some of it. Um, we've been talking about generics, about the United States Public Health Service, but what I would love to hear from you is, what is your favorite thing about being an SLP in uniform? Well, certainly the, the, the ability to, to 
serve people that are in, ba- that are in need, underserved populations. Uh, I have worked with, uh, with the Navajo uh, for 12 years, and, and certainly I have learned much more from them than I, than I ever expected. Uh, so just the ability to communicate, learn, interact, and really learn how uh, social linguistics affect people's ability to communicate and their ability to understand, that, that really has been very rich for me. Well, the reason why I became a speech language pathologist was uh, because of the idea of, of language and finding how people understand and use language to to tap into their activities of daily living and really their resources. Uh, I see speech language pathology as an opportunity to learn about social linguistics in a microcosm, how the person uses language to obtain what they want, to express their basic needs and to express their emotions. And, and certainly working with another culture within our own borders is, is a very rich thing. Uh, really realizing that Native Americans are as Americans as everybody else, but certainly their culture is very rich and they use um, social linguistics to really um, work amongst themselves but also to communicate with the, with the majority culture here in, in the Southwest and interact. And, and so that's been a, quite a rich experience for me. Well, and I, I actually feel kind of fortunate that we caught you at the tail end because um, my, the first part interview, which will be on one episode, I had six or seven people on the call. And then the last one with, um, with Courtney Wood and Joanne Sense. And then here we get to do an add-on where I get to kind of focus in on you. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Yeah, well, and thank you for joining us. I, what would you tell someone if they whether on this podcast or otherwise recently heard about the United States Public Health Service, what would you want them to know? Well, I, I, I always look for some, for, for sharing uh, what I learned and, and to really um, experience what life is like here in the United States. And so I was always looking for something like that. I had my own private practice at one point. And then I went to an ASHA conference in Miami in 2006, and I saw a person in uniform, and I thought that they were Navy. So I was intrigued by the thought that there were SLPs actually in uniform. Uh, both my siblings uh, served. One, one is a retired colonel from the Marine Corps, and the other one uh, served in the Army, graduated from West Point, and then left before actually retiring. Um, and so I always looked at at the uniform as an opportunity to to um, share with people. I never saw it as a wall or a deterrent, but actually an icebreaker. And so um, with that in mind, I approached that person at ASHA and I asked them what it was, and they told me it was a public health service, that they work also with uh, remote areas in the United States with with Indian Health Service, and and so I thought that that would 
that that was something that I would like to do, go, go basically on mission work <laughs> in the Southwest or we're in Alaska or in a place where, where uh, there are underserved populations. And you don't have to go very far. It's not like you have to go into the Southwest. Just there are underserved populations, even in urban centers, where we can provide service. And so that was what motivated me to, to put on the uniform. And I think that that is something that, that gives the officer, like I said, an icebreaker. Uh, when I see patients here at, at the clinic, the uniform really helps to create a conversation. Even with the children, they come in and they're always, you know, uh, looking at me in uniform and wondering what it's all about. And, and it becomes a conversational piece where, you know, as they're talking, you can you can pretty much do your assessment as to how they use language. So so you get your informal language assessment that way. And it, and it, like I said, it's a good icebreaker. You don't have to use a whole lot of toys and a whole lot of other gadgets. Um, that's what I have found. And it's not just with the young ones, but also with the elders. Many of them are veterans and or have family that serve. And so they're familiar with the uniform, and it's always something, like I said, an icebreaker to get them to talk about their family, to relate to them, and to connect with them in in a very personal way. And uh, before I, I, I won't take too much of your time, but I would love to hear, um, do you have any favorite story or an experience that you would like to share as a speech-language pathologist for the United States Public Health Service? Oh, um, the stories that I have are, are basically um, where, there, where there is some social pragmatic breakdown in the communication. So I had one patient come in, and basically he sat there and didn't want to participate in much. It was, it was a patient that came referred for swallowing difficulties. And so there wasn't a whole lot that I felt I could say at the time, but take him down to radiology. We did a modified barium swallow. And at the time, I was able to sit there with my Tim's machine and go over all the videos with them and really point out things. And he, and he was just fascinated by that experience of being able to see himself swallow and how, um, and the difficulties that he had. You know, even the postural difficulties of elevating the chin while he's drinking a liquid and then coughing and then showing him why that happened, because it's, it's a very simple postural modification. We get back to the room and his first question is, well, what medications are you going to give me? And I said, well, I do not give medication. <laughs> My medications are water and honey. <laughs> That's it. And he started laughing. And I said, why, wh why do you? why do you laugh? Why did you think I was going to give you medication? And he said, well, that's what the white people always give me. The white doctors <laughs> always give me a medication and they expect that to solve my problem. And I said, well, don't you take the medication? And he said, no, I just go to the medicine man and get the stuff. So, so I, was, I was intrigued by that. And I said, no, 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 I don't give medication. What you need to do is follow the directions I gave you while you were doing this, the, the postural changes you need to drink a lot more water. And, and then we proceeded to talk about sodas and soft drinks and, and the effect of those on reflux. And, and 
it would certainly, I mean, with every bit of information, his eyes would just light up and it was, it was like, well, I can do this. I can really do this and solve this problem that he had with, with swallowing that he had had for years. He never realized that by lifting his chin up, he was choking and he was coughing on liquid. And it was something as simple as a chin tuck that solved his problem. And then later on, he, he would come back. He came back and saw me like six months later. He stopped by the office and said hello to me like a year later. And, it's, and it was just a very, very sweet resolution to that issue, which was to me, to us, it's very simple. But to everybody out there, the physiognomy, the, the 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 placement of the trachea and the placement of the esophagus and 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 the ability to swallow just by moving your head a certain way, swallow more safely, those are very elementary for us who have done the study, but to our patients, they really don't they've never thought about it. They've never really thought about that, that that those things. And they just say, well maybe Maybe something's happening to me, and I just need a pill or something to solve it. And so, that was just a very, a very nice experience that I had in providing service here. Thank you so much for telling us about that. And I'm sure that opened the door as well for other people that he knew to potentially feel more comfortable coming to see you as well. Yes, I, I, I and certainly through the years that I've been here, you know, I've seen, I've seen entire families. I mean with the children that have language difficulties and the adults and even the elders that are in the nursing home. Um, so you, so you see the span of life and you really see the family and the dynamics there and, and the little impact that you can do. That's one of the, one of the exceptional things is the ability to, to have that continuity of service in such a remote place. And to be privileged to be able to do that in uniform is is quite a quite a, a gift, I think, that that's given to me by by being able to serve that way. And I, so. I do think that we speech language pathology is a lifespan profession, right? But not many SLPs get to do what you do with working really through the lifespan with the population. Yeah, no. Be, before entering the core, um, I I graduated from the University of Iowa, and I went to work in South Florida in the school system, and and then I I was able to come to New Mexico and put my private practice in Santa Fe, and we, even with private practice, you are able to create a niche for yourself to serve a certain population that you want to serve. But the ability to serve in, in, a, in a remote place like this where you see the gamut really keeps you on your toes. It, it's enriching. It, it, it makes you wonder other, other ways you can, you can provide service beyond just, you know, like in the schools or, or in other settings. But just, just the contact that you have. And, and by, by what I said about the continuous service, the continuity of services also allows you to go into other issues like the pragmatics of language, the use of language, how the elders are communicating with the young ones who may not speak the language anymore, um, and, and how the young ones view the elders because they don't speak English. 
um, those things uh, you can you can really tap into by having formed that relationship that a lot of times I did not experience when I was living in a big city like Miami. I would see people, I would see families, but you don't have that immediate closeness uh, or accessibility that you have in 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 small remote towns like the ones in the Southwest, or I would imagine also in Alaska. Well, um, I will wrap up for us here, but Commander Eric Kala um, and, of course, Lieutenant Courtney Wood, thank you both mm-hmm. for being Absolutely. here. Um, and thank you for your time, and it's been a joy to learn about the United States Public Health Service. <laughs> um, I, hope that, I hope that our listeners will feel the same way. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. Well, thank you. And now for our regular research review, brought to you by the Informed SLP. The Informed SLP releases a monthly newsletter that brings you plain language reviews of only the newest, most clinically applicable research, keeping you up to date on advances in the field and saving you tons of time. So let's get to it. A simple ask. Are there alternative methods for detecting mild cognitive impairment, or MCI? This is a review of the article titled, The Utility of Simple Questions to Evaluate Cognitive Impairment, originally published in the journal PLOS ONE. The simple answer, yes. Date et al. found that alternative tools like asking questions, observing if the client attended the appointment with a care partner, and noting if the client turned their head toward their care partner could serve as an effective screener for detecting MCI in older adults. In fact, these tools were found to be as accurate as certain neurocognitive batteries in distinguishing between individuals with and without Alzheimer's dementia, or AD. So what are these alternative tools that can successfully detect the presence of MCI? How about these five questions that involve both actually asking clients questions as well as recording nonverbal items that occurred during a session? First, do you feel that you have more difficulties in your daily life than you used to? The response, no, I do not have difficulties, could be indicative of anosognosia. Secondly, could you tell me about your daily pleasures or pastimes? Any response like nothing or a vague response like generally I enjoy everything. Third, what are some notable current news topics? Look for responses like nothing or there have been a number of recent events or provide news more than a half a year old. Fourth, look at with whom they attended. Record whether the client visited the clinic alone or with someone else, such as family, friend, or a care partner. And fifth, Look for a head turn. If the client turned their head at least once during an interview to seek help from their care partner, this could be indicative of MCI. All five of these markers were equally effective in identifying MCI. In disbelief about the simplicity of this method, let's screen the screener using our checklist. Diagnostic accuracy. Responses to the questions about current news and pleasures or pastimes had high specificity, 75% or higher, in distinguishing those with and without Alzheimer's dementia. 
An incorrect response to the question about current news items was as effective in detecting the presence of cognitive impairment as performance on certain memory and executive function batteries. Recording the presence or absence of a care partner during an interview and asking about difficulties in daily life was 80% sensitive in detecting cognitive impairment. This is also free of cost, it's easy to administer, it's time sensitive, and it may account for diversity across numerous factors. Participants in this study were recruited from a memory clinic in Japan, ranging in age from 50 to 90 years old with a wide variety of diagnoses, including Alzheimer's dementia, vascular dementia, and amnestic MCI. But similar results were noted in another study with people from Turkey. And these methods may be relatively robust to differences in cultural variables, although the authors suggest this should be formally explored. Thanks for listening to this review. If you're interested in more, come visit us at www.theinformedslp.com. Tell us how you put the research into practice, or find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Informed SLP. Speech Science, episode number 124. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. And Michael McLeod. Hi, Matt. What's up, y'all? So, I, in addition to having to redo my pupil activity permit, I also had to re-sign up for my uh, OSLA, my association dues, and my, uh, what do you call it, the insurance? Liability. Liability insurance is the word I was looking for. Thank yep, you. Yeah, mm-hmm. mine's due too. I need to send that. Is in. it really? Yep. I noticed the liability is getting uh, pricier and pricier these days. Ours was 70. What was yours? Do you remember? Well, I, I have to do it for, for oh, my entire yeah. LLC. So it's, uh, it's way it's a up different. there. Yeah. <laughs> I tell everybody, like, in even in the schools, like, yeah, we have a, a union and we have, like, insurance through the school, but liability insurance is huge. Sure is. For the price, 70 bucks, I'd rather have that than somehow get sued and then lose everything. Exactly. Do you guys carry, uh, oh, umbrella insurance as well? An umbrella policy? Not that no. I can think of. I was told by my insurance agent, I've been carrying an umbrella policy for the last three years. It's kind of like we have liability where the schools cover us, then we have the liability insurance, but the umbrella policy is kind of like that extra that might help cover anything else that the liability doesn't cover or like if I were to get in a car crash. So I think it's an extra five bucks a month for me. Interesting. It's not bad. Yeah, I think I carry like a crazy amount too. So, like, I'm super worried about that kind of stuff. Hey, if I ask you, this is the ASHA Spotlight segment. So, every week we always look at what ASHA is doing right because it is super easy to talk all about what ASHA is doing wrong. And we could totally pinpoint about how there was a comment in a Facebook group today about how they have targeted ads going towards SLPs on google but you know maybe we're not the target audience for asha's ads maybe spend that money targeting other things asha but let's look at the positives do you guys know what your s do you guys know what is in your slp toolkit and i'm not talking about the cool data thing that i pay money for to use do you guys know what an slp toolkit is 
Sounds familiar. I mean, I've just heard the term meaning like what skills and yes. strategies and everything else that I personally as an SLP have. And that is exactly what Ash is talking about. And this month they're talking about, uh, it's from that's unheard of.org. What's in your toolkit. And they want to make sure that what you have in your SLP toolkit uh, is multicultural affairs and resources. So then that way you're able to connect with clients and families better. <laughs> but I love it. There's the ABCs of empowerment through volunteering, uh, diversity, inclusion, self-assessment for cultural competence. That is a fun one. There's a personal reflection of policies and procedures and service delivery. They're all little PDFs and they, you know, I'm going to give you some of the questions and Michelle, Mike answer. Uh, one is things that you always do. Two is things that you sometimes do or three things that I rarely do. I'm not going to make okay. you do all of them, but just for example, uh, I recognize differences in narrative styles and pragmatic behaviors that vary across cultures. One, always two, sometimes three, never. Always. I would say always. Yeah. It's a number. So one, got it. One, sure. Uh, I consider all the available research evidence. Two. Two? Okay. <laughs> I like the honesty. Yeah. I want to say one, but two. probably more two. <laughs> yeah, two. But then it also says, I allow for alternative methods of sharing experiences and communication, such as storytelling. One, two, or three. Oh, I thought you were listing yeah, more. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Do you allow for storytelling? One, two, or three? One, meaning one. I do. One, yes. Okay. Use of props to support the oral tradition that is prevalent in some cultures. Yeah, of course. If they, yes. if they, if they bring a prop, sure. <laughs> and I'm not going to say put your prop away. <laughs> but no, it's really cool. There's like three different things. It's So it's the uh, how to build your SLP toolkit using multicultural affairs and the resources over on the Asha website. So, yeah, that's that kind of cool. That is cool. That's yeah, it's great. I do like. I found that I th okay. Here we go. I'm aware that individuals from my clients' racial or ethnic background may have a higher incidence of specific disorders that may have implications for speech, language, and hearing, including. So one, you knew this. Two, you kind of knew this. Or three, you did not. Sickle cell anemia. It's I lost you guys for a second. Can you repeat Can you hear that us part? now, Michelle? Yes. Uh, okay. It says, I'm aware of individuals from my client's racial, ethnic background may have a higher incidence of specific disorders that may have implications for speech, language, and hearing. So one, you knew this. Two, you maybe knew this. Three, you did not know this. Sickle cell anemia. Did you know that had an impact on speech? I believe Two. so. Yeah. Hypertension? I did not Two. know that. Diabetes. Two. Cardiovascular disease. Uh, two. Definitely heart affects everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And frequent middle ear and upper respiratory infections. That's a one. I knew that. That's one. a one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's cool. Building out that SLP toolkit. The link will be down uh, in the show notes. All right. Let's wrap this baby up and send her on home. Mike, you went second the first time, so you'll go first the second time. Oh, boy. If that makes sense. What I don't know if I'm doing... awake enough for that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing this week that is not speech therapy related? 
Oh man. Well, I'll, I'll be going on a, on a hike this week with, with the wife. That'll be nice. Uh, get outdoors a little bit, get out of this basement that I'm currently in that I spend my entire life in. Uh, so yeah. So I, I think getting out in nature will be very, a nice thing to do before September comes around Labor Day. Ooh. So are you going to do any, you so you're just doing hiking in the, in the nature area? Yeah. Like a, like a, like a, one of those places like in the middle of Pennsylvania, like, uh, yeah, like, like kind of like in the, the woods, Mike. It's yeah, the woods. the woods. Yeah. That works. Cool. <laughs> call it, let's call it that. Okay. Michelle. It's not, it's, it's not teletherapy. So there you go. Hey, there you go. Michelle, what are you doing this week? That is not therapy related. I feel and like I should I, make it not move related. Well, <laughs> and I was going to say, you're not allowed to talk about the move and you already mentioned pregnancy. What are you not doing related to either wow. of those? Wow, I feel like everything in my life is related to the move in pregnancy right oh, now. Oh no, don't say um, that. That's, I mean, <laughs> that's factual. That's not really. Otherwise, I'm trying to get out for a hike actually ourselves. Um, there you go. To go explore some of the outdoor, outdoor things here because it's something our family really likes to do. That's awesome. Um, I think I'm going to try to get both of my boys out this week to Top Golf to get because it's outdoors we can socially distance my son my oldest has his own set of clubs so we don't even have to borrow clubs because i don't want to take my youngest out on a golf course this next weekend and have him complain the entire time about how hot it is <laughs> i thought of you matt because also to get them out a... of the house from my wife because she's pregnant and True. could probably use the break from the three men in the house <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a a lake here that we can fish in, walkable yeah. from my house. So I was thinking of you and your boys last week, and I want to get my son out fishing sometime. For sure. How old is he? He's two. Two. Maybe. My Andrew, uh, my youngest, he was interested in it for about a minute and a half. That sounds about right. It might be three minutes, but <laughs> that's probably true. He wanted to throw it in and then reel it right back in right away. However, so the waiting is the hardest part in golf and fishing. <laughs> so yes. You guys both may appreciate this more you, Michelle, than Mike, just because Mike, you don't have any children. But like on the little kitty pole, they have like a blue weighted fish that you can attach to the end of the pole, like end of the line, and throw it in and they can practice like what the line Casting. feels like yeah. with something on. Like I, I can still appreciate in. that. Right, I know. I might like, can appreciate that. Yeah, it, man. I might like that. <laughs> I need that practice. I guess I should also give the background that my youngest thought he really had a fish on his line the first 10 times that he reeled it in because he kept seeing it because it's like a blue fish that swims through the water. And then once he realized that I wasn't taking it off and then that it didn't look like the fish that his brother was catching, then I had to really he give him a hook. not happy. Yeah, not happy. Evidently, I can't fool a child. <laughs> Hard to fool a child. Oh, I've tried for the last seven years. Our intro music is Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike music. Our bump music is the County Fair Rock, copyrighted John Deku. Find all of his music at soundcloud.com slash music. The Informed SLP, it's At The Count by Broke for Free, licensed under a Creative Commons and Attribution license. And our closing music is the Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. We want to hear from you, so make sure you are smashing that hashtag SSPod 
Uh, we want your shout outs. We want your due process. We want you to hang out with us in the Discord. Email us, call us. We're lonely. You can text us 614 681 We are lonely. Eight. Lovely or lonely? Lovely or lonely? Lovely. Yeah, well, that's true. We are <laughs> lovely folks. We will text message you right back, no matter the time. I guess if you're in Australia, I'm looking for our international people to send us a text. I think you'd have to use the area like 1614. That's yes. correct. That's how our country we, code. How, I know the music's playing. The show's almost over. How did we as a country get the country code 1? Because we probably invented country codes. <laughs> Who the hell knows? We just claimed it. Like, <laughs> That's what yeah. like, I would think that like if we were picking out if okay if we were picking out country codes i would think our country code would be like 1776 i don't think it was based that's on just numbers. picking a random that's more number numbers to die. or okay <laughs> seven four i mean if okay if they're just assigning them obviously you could pick them we picked number one there was like 180 countries well, I mean, the telephone was invented in the United States, so... Oh. Was it? Yeah. It was. No, I, Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah, but I always thought there was, like, somebody else that did it. And... Who knows Probably. how that star in other countries? Like, right. Yeah, I, I'd be curious, but... Um, I mean, my guess would be because the telephone was invented in the United States, but who knows? I think there's also an episode of drunk history about the real history of who really invented the first telephone stuff. right see that's what i'm talking about it's just like that stupid question in the ripa it's like who discovered and who discovered america see. have you guys ever given the ripa the ross informational processing assessment i haven't all the music's Sounds playing familiar. under this no one's really listening to this part anyway <laughs> but i'm assuming what it wants is christopher columbus but right until you get some smart ass patient that's like oh it was this viking guy and in the middle of therapy you have to google who the viking guy is because you're like no and he's like no that's who discovered it and then he's right yeah well i remember doing a uh, as an undergrad psych major doing an intelligence test for a grad student just so they could practice right and you right. keep going as long as you get it in the open-ended questions we later talked about in my you know later psych classes but um the one that <laughs> drove me nuts and the grad student just looked at me because obviously what i was saying was not on their responses was they said uh, why is it difficult for a um for a deaf person to learn how to talk and Ooh. I said, well, do you mean talk in, um, like, communicate in American Sign Language? Or do you mean, and I went off about it, about how, well, their first signs would actually come sooner if you're talking about communicating in a visual spatial language. <laughs> and, like, the kid just looked at me, um, who was probably a few years older than me at the time. And I was like, okay, so you want me to say what the book probably says, which is they don't, <laughs> you're talking verbal speech and they don't have an auditory model. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Uh, but it, there's a lot of questions like that that are very biased in psych testing, in evaluation testing. It's not just speech. So I got an answer to the country dialing codes. I okay. also, so do I. I. I looked it up as well. I was going to say, did you look it up and it was political? One is for USA, two for Africa, three and four for Europe. And uh, that means Russia was number seven. I actually found that both, <laughs> both the USA and Canada are one. And that is because Alexander Graham Bell was Canadian. 
Oh, nice. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Now you know. I do know there one is is the U.S., Canada, and isn't it the Caribbean areas in the Caribbean? Yep. Okay. There you go. Look at Mexico that. is fifty-two. Good for them. <laughs> Brazil is fifty-five. All right. And the immortal words of Jana's right always be a willow. The oak looks strong until the storm blows through and the oak will crack. The willow will bend and return to forms. Form <laughs> for fellow willows in the number one country code. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, I'm Matt Hot. Until next week. So long, everybody. If anyone is Bye. still listening through the yeah. music. Yeah. Bye, y'all. This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.